You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER. We are flexing herds with your murder mystery world tour. And herds, we are still stuck in the dark depraves of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's mind. But this time in New York City, 2012. I... I'll, I'll let you know, before we even get into, like, the episodes we're doing, any of that crazy nonsense, I had no clue what to expect with this show after the mind freak that was uh, BBC Sherlock that we covered last week on the show. I want to say the last thing I was expecting was Sherlock Holmes' name attached to the product was a police procedural, but I'm glad that we got there. <laughs> we are talking elementary from 2012 and 13. Season one, we are full spoilers on this one, but we won't be talking too much in detail about the tail end of the season because most of our favorite stuff was in kind of the first two thirds. So you're safe, but absolutely do go check the show out if you are concerned about spoilers. Herds. Flex. I wanted to open with elementary starting off. You see, you know, it's got the kind of raunchy start with Lucy Lou walking up while this woman who is some kind of scantily clad woman leaves Sherlock's apartment and then he's standing there shirtless. It's just, it's just a wild ride. I didn't even think I was looking at Sherlock. <laughs> I was like, who is this guy? I'd seen bits and pieces of this show years ago and quit for reasons that we will talk about coming up later on the show. But the thing about this pilot episode that it immediately gets right, that the BBC Sherlock show gets wrong, is the way that it presents its clues. There is this fantastic scene in the first episode where Sherlock walks into the crime scene and he says, ah, I figured out there is a safe in the wall here. And they say, how do you know that? And he picks up a ball, drops it on the floor, and it starts rolling. And as it's rolling, he explains why it's rolling. The door opens in front of it and there's what they were looking for. It's such an elegant and simple set piece that I think brilliantly constructs the respect that this show has on most occasions for the conventions of mystery. I I particularly enjoyed that moment. Uh, Yeah, they ended on the reveal, a quite startling reveal of a body, which is also perfect. Uh, And uh, yeah, comparing it to, uh, you know, BBC Sherlock, which we we watched last week, you know, you'd expect there to be words flashing up on screen like indentation or slope, floor, raised, Lowered, raised, lowered. You're like, why is the floor raised and lowered? I don't understand BBC Sherlock. But we we get uh, this beautiful demonstration of the clue as Sherlock is explaining it. And uh, I love the tension of that scene. As he, And he's not just telling us. He's telling everybody else in the room what's just following along. And it's how we begin our journey uh, of traveling through through Sherlock's mind as we go through the show. Yeah, and I think talking about Sherlock's mind, that's one of the things that this show gets most right, is rather than tr- doing what BBC Sherlock tried uh, tried to do and putting us straight in the mind of Sherlock Holmes and showing us all of these flashes and thoughts, we are always on the outside, largely from you know Watson's perspective to some extent. But also it does this brilliant thing, which is that when it uses its flashbacks, they always give this kind of green, reddish tint Uh, which I think is meant to look like kind of blood and veins over the screen, that is always when we get a flashback that shows the truth. So you know that once you've seen those flashbacks, you're not getting bamboozled again. It's a real simple tool that means that the show always, like, is keeping you up to pace whether or not you're paying attention to the mystery. I, uh, yeah, I think that this show, having, you know, 24 episodes for its first season rather than three, uh, it really had... 
it really has a lot of mo- a lot of a lot of room to move around in. But I think that the decision to have uh, the star Johnny Lee Miller, who portrays Sherlock, get so visceral. Um, I think it is an incredibly strong decision and it's not, you know, angsty. It's not like, you know, emotional, like I'm so like much more greater than you. Like it's none of that. It's just raw human emotion being thrown at the audience and Watson has to deal with it as the sober companion, which is a term that I hate, by the way. It is It is a pretty janky term that I'm not sure if the show invented or just adopted, but it definitely does not flow off the tongue particularly nicely. I'm imagining that it was a term stated in one Sherlock Holmes book, maybe two, and they said, ah, oh, I see, that's our tagline. I feel like maybe where it actually came from is probably from actual, like, addiction support groups in the United States, but they they specifically chose one that sounded a little bit janky so that it would stick out, right? So that it feels uncomfortable. I still think it's an insane, like, uh, title to give someone. I completely agree with your point, but I don't think that they made it as a poor choice unaware. No, no, no. I don't think they were completely unaware, but I still think that it is madness because just saying sober companion, Joan Watson, the sober companion, it does not roll off the tongue. Now, I, I don't want to continue railing on BBC Sherlock too much, but the other point that someone who is watching it with us made is that BBC Sherlock, when it comes to the performances, is a lot like professional wrestling to elementary's regular sport. The performances in this show are still excellent. There is fantastic subtlety, particularly to a lot of the guest characters, surprisingly. And, you know, the little quivers of the lip and the sly glances, they're all very deliberate and well-delivered. Um, as opposed to Sherlock by BBC's dramatic close-ups, tough stare-downs, over-the-top caricatures. Like, it, it very much has brought back to ground the swashbuckling adventures that the BBC Sherlock version seems to be trying to portray and dragged it more into that conventional p- uh, police procedural world, but still kind of kept that that overdramatic flair that the original books had in a very tasteful way. You're absolutely right. I think that is the greatest strength of this show, that it does bring back the human element. Uh, it makes us feel actually... Let me tell you what the greatest element of this show is, because I've been thinking about it, and I finally hit upon it. So, in BBC Sherlock, there is a moment where we're introduced to a character named Sarah, and she is going to be going on a date with Watson. Now, my immediate thought was, oh, Sarah, whatever, she's just some random character. She'll be here for one scene as an excuse to go on a date, and then she'll disappear. But not only is she captured by the criminals at the end of that episode, she's also in the next episode. She's there for about 50% of the runtime of the first season of Sherlock. And I was like, who is this Sarah person? Should I care about her? However, in this show, in Elementary... Um, we get introduced to many, many of Joan Watson's exes and flings and dates, and every single one of them I was thinking is, are they going to tie into the case somehow? Are they going to come back in a later episode to like be, you know, a, a contact that can help us with the, with the murders that are going to occur? I felt like the characters in this show in Elementary, they all felt important, like they might have a place somewhere. Um, which of course leads into the greatest strength of the show, which, and it's how they frame the the criminals of the of the stories, which we'll talk about more later. But uh, in that the show has this beautiful way, uh, and sometimes quite awkward way, I guess, of making the criminal the person that you would least suspect, but is always like always there. You know, I I think that it takes that aspect of mystery solving. 
um, and really plays it very, very strongly. Yeah, I mean, the downside to that, as with many modern police procedurals, is that it becomes very predictable to be like, oh, this is the person they're trying to introduce to us without making them seem suspicious. It's obviously them. The question is always, uh, one of the biggest clues you can kind of surmise from is how much screen time does this character get? Because if they're introduced as, you know, oh, I'm just an innocent witness, but we keep bringing them back for multiple scenes, they're probably a killer, or at the very least, in on the crime in some way. Um, yeah, there was there was one particularly strange uh, episode though that followed this trope. Uh, it's it's Child Predator, the third episode, where we have a very clear criminal. We have someone who's kidnapping kids and killing them, which I was surprised that they would actually add that detail. I thought it was going to be, oh, we find them all at the end. In the third episode of the show, mind you, like we're right out the gate here. Like we've established this kind of raunchy tone, but I thought that's where it's going to end. You're a little bit of playfulness, a little bit of murder. That's fine. Not kids getting killed on the third episode. It's insane. Um, but it, it turns out, spoilers, that uh, the it's not the kidnapper who is the orchestrator of these events. He kidnapped one kid, and that kid emotionally manipulated him into becoming his accomplice in kidnapping more kids, which is, like, a really cool idea, but it also is completely in defiance of the realistic tone that the show is going for. I still think it works. Like, I was still compelled, but it's like... Ah. The, the, the problem I really had with that episode is that they tried to set up this child as, like, some great intellect when he'd made so many stupid mistakes. And, like, obviously that was the crux of the show, is that Sherlock noticed the stupid mistakes, but it was like the tone that they were giving the kid felt very out of touch with the tone of the premise of the crime. Like, it was like, oh, look at this creepy mystery genius, rather than being like, child predator, terrible. And, like, obviously he was still supposed to be a victim, so, that like, they couldn't completely just stonewall that. But it was still definitely a weird tone, and it was probably the, the biggest misstep, I think, that the show had towards the start. Yeah, well, that was something that I found quite interesting about that episode, even if it was a little bit jumbled in terms of tone and, like, the moral point of the episode. I did like that everyone was kind of... A bad guy, you know, like, because the kid who'd been kidnapped originally was obviously a victim of being kidnapped, but then he, you know, was completely psychotic and committed a bunch of crimes. And throughout the episode, he's trying to manipulate his parents and the and the justice system to get immunity for the crimes that he corroborated in. Um, but also the person who kidnapped him, who should be, who is, is a villain, like he kidnapped a kid, has like broken vertebrae in his back and he like sleeps on a dirty mattress and he kills himself. Like I do enjoy because I love these kinds of stories. Uh, I love stories where the villains are just as much victims as everybody else, you know, like you, you can have someone who is both a victim and a perpetrator. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I will say about that episode that did, did kind of like elevate it above what it would have otherwise been was that it had a very good B-plot of Sherlock and Watson starting to work together as, you know, Watson's like, all right, cool, I'm going to help Sherlock stay up and, you know, get this work done rather than trying to fight it. And it was a really great early moment of their building their duo. But then the other week episode that I wanted to talk about now before we get into the, our favorite episodes in the latter part of the show is uh, an episode called Leviathan. It's the 10th episode of the season, and it is, I think, hands down the worst episode the show has had because it basically introduces the premise, shows you that the premise is right, and then just, like, cruises for the entire rest of the show. The B-plot doesn't go anywhere. 
you know, the mystery is solved almost immediately. There's nothing going on and there's like no twist or revelation to wrap it up. It's just, oh, we were right half an hour ago. Yeah, the the way that the plot kind of tries to create tension is that there are four criminals and they're like killing each other. Like someone is killing all the other criminals, which is like a fun premise, especially in like mafia movies, because then you can have the remaining crew be like, I want to seek asylum, please protect me, policemen. And then they can't protect them because that's how those movies go. Um, but yeah, we, we essentially given these four suspects um, pretty early on and then they start dying until there's only one left. And it's like, well, obviously it's the last one, you know, <laughs> like, there's not much of a mystery. Yeah, like obviously I think the payoff in that episode is meant to be that Sherlock is a good guy and gives back the painting that was stolen that he hung up in his room. But like you kind of knew that was coming anyway because he's just like, yeah, I'll return it later. They, they said that really early on so it just it never goes anywhere and it was such a letdown that having gone 10 episodes of what was pretty good uh storytelling we get to the 10th episode and it kind of fell flat a bit the one thing i will say though is that this show does an excellent job of taking an element from its previous story and building on in the next one not to say that they're like creating these lengthy plots between episodes other than the overarching sherlock watson narrative but that like for example the thing that was wrong with the leviathan is that they had four criminals who weren't you know, who just kind of became a background element to their own story, more or less. And then the next episode had a bunch of other criminals killing each other off, and it did it really well. So it's like the writers were constantly trying to one-up each other in the writer's room, and it's actually done the show very well on, you know, the output, because it means that the show is constantly growing and improving on its own mistakes. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Like, Again, we don't want to harp on BBC Shock so much, but I did literally say last week that the thing they can do to make that show better is to extend the number of episodes, make them shorter, cut them in half maybe, almost exactly. Um, and yeah, it, it gives them a lot more room because the way the BBC Sherlock episodes were, were paced out was that there was the pilot, which was essentially disconnected from the other episodes. And then they wrote the third episode and then they wrote the second episode. So it all, none of it is, none of it fits together. It's all very disjointed. But in this show, because we have one episode after the other, and there's clearly communication between the writers, between the episodes, we can tell that it's one cohesive story and it's building and building and building to the climax um, and we'll talk about the the half-season climax on, on the latter half of this episode, of course. Anyway, I think that this show gets off to an excellent start, and I'd like to talk about three of our favourite episodes coming up after this quick break. Let's do it. And we will get into that shortly. You are listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds talking elementary. We'll be back in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here talking elementary. The New York set Sherlock Holmes adaptation from 2012 and 13. We are talking season one. The spoilers are in and Herds. We wanted to talk about a few of our favorite episodes before wrapping up the show today. This is normally the time that we talk on this show about the construction of the mystery. But as we spoke about in the first half, the mysteries are very straightforward police procedural. So there's not a lot to go into here. So I think what we should focus on here, Herds, and the the reason we've chosen these three favorite episodes of ours is because these are the shows that kind of set up the greatest strengths of the show and why we think they are 
such a fundamental element to this show's storytelling. Can we just jump into my favorite episode? Is that are we are we allowed to do that? Will the producers let us? Which which of these three is your favorite? Oh, lesser evils, obviously. Good, good. That's the right choice. It is one hundred percent my favorite episode. It literally, like, even the title itself is calling out one of my favorite tropes in in media. You know, when the hero is given two bad options, and they have to decide between the two. It's not quite like that. We kind of end up, you know jamming both of them, both options. But basically this episode is set in a hospital um, and we're introduced to a, uh, as as we're getting the famous, you know, Sherlock tests out his like murder methods on a corpse scene. Uh, he uncovers that one of the corpses has been murdered, which is great. I love the way that he keeps just stumbling onto murders more often than not by almost pure chance. Uh, but yeah, he uncovers that one of the corpses has been, has been murdered uh, and so he decides to investigate its death and he eventually finds out that a whole bunch of people have been murdered in the hospital and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the way that the tension, the scale builds is, is beautiful. Um, but the, the twist ending is that we uncover the killer, a janitor. Yeah, he was he was Soviet trained and came to the US and ended up getting work as a janitor because his credentials didn't quite follow through or something along those lines. Essentially, the, the through line that we get with this guy is that he's a janitor working at a hospital so that he can, if need be, uh, euthanize people because he believes very much that suffering is bad. Uh, he's taken a, a very firm stance on the euthanasia issue in, in the US uh, and he's decided that, yeah, if he sees that a, that a patient is suffering, uh, it is in pain, he is going to off them. Um, yeah, I, I will say the one thing I do want to catch you on before you continue sure. is that he catches them if they're suffering and they are, they are said to be heading towards a certain death. That is his key criteria. All right, all right, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Point is, euthanasia is good in his eyes. The, the kind of thing that the show does that is very clever is that we actually see the janitor very, very early on, and this ties back into how like any character could be an important character. But Sherlock uh, finds the janitor in the room of of the the recently deceased, and he spills a bunch of like water and stuff everywhere to get the janitor out of the room. So. In the first, like, five minutes of the episode, we're already setting this guy up, our killer, to be sympathetic because Holmes is bullying him and pushing him around because, oh, he's just a janitor and my time's more important than his, which is fantastic to set up the fact that the janitor is being used by the head of surgery to cover up his own crimes. Ah! Yes. It's so good! It is excellent. This episode sets up three killers. The first- well, Three criminals. Three criminals. Yeah. Yes, the first of which is just a a low-paid doctor who is basically stealing uh, drugs from patients' drips to get himself through long shifts. Uh, The second is the janitor, and the third is the head of surgery, who basically- is on such an ego trip that he thinks that keeping himself in the profession despite many strikes against his record is worthwhile because of how many he could save. And basically starts, once he discovered what the janitor was doing, starts using him to cover up other mistakes by having the patients mysteriously die for other reasons. Every time he botches the surgery or, or makes the wrong diagnosis, he says, hey, like he doesn't talk to the janitor directly. He manipulates him by changing the records of the patients. So it looks like they're going to die soon and also like up certain medications to make them suffer horribly. So when the janitor gets there, they're incoherent and can't snitch on him. Oh, it's so awful. The head, like 
again, this ties into that whole idea that even though the janitor is the murderer, he has a moral code and he's sticking to it. We empathize with the actual murder criminal in this case. Um, and as I said, Holmes needs a murder to get in on this. But the undisputed worst person in this story is not the killer. It's the person who's using the killer for their own ends. And uh, yeah, and I mean, the other thing that is excellent about this episode is just the performances. Baldwin, I think, is the name of the head of surgery. He is just just phenomenally performed. Every little twitch of the muscle, every little sly glance, every little tilt of the head, every little you know furrowing of the brow is so deliberate and well-delivered that it still gives you a bit of doubt, but is, is just elegantly put together. And as well as just being well-written, it's really great seeing these actors do excellent things like the janitor twisting his accent to reflect his Soviet background in the most beautifully subtle ways. This episode, uh, it looks like, was written by by Liz Friedman and directed by Colin Buxey. And I'll be entirely honest, I want to see more of Liz's work, Miss Friedman. I want to see... What other crazy, crazy narrative twists and turns she can pull up for us? Now, before we completely run out of time, I did want to talk about our two other favorite episodes. The The second one I wanted to talk about is The Deductionist, where an ex of Sherlock comes into town. She's a criminal profiler and a criminal that they both caught together back in the day has escaped and is going on a rampage that goes against his profile. And the episode basically turns out that both of them had a profile written about them that predicted doom and said despair about their past. And the killer is basically trying to get revenge because the paper accused uh, his father of sexual abuse. Uh, which was a lie that ended up leading to the father's suicide. Yeah, it ruined their family. And then Sherlock basically had his drug addiction predicted by this uh, criminal profiler. The reason that this episode stands out, it's a its a good episode, not a phenomenal episode the way through. The performances are excellent. Um, but when we get to the final scene, Sherlock tries to see if the criminal can go against the profile that was written for him to try and prove whether Sherlock himself can go against the self-annihilation that was profiled for him. For an episode that really just gets off to a pretty wild start with a aggressive serial killer going out murdering people taking photos with victims it's it's horrible and terribly cruel but the way that we tie it all back together at the end is an excellent culmination of some of just the pure chaos that has been going on in the personal lives of uh, Sherlock and Watson throughout the course of the previous episodes it is it brings to a head the assertion that in any other show would be said by a police officer named Sally and just said straight to the camera but uh, it is the assertion that Sherlock is heading to disaster uh, and that he, it, it is never said explicitly what Sherlock wants from this criminal when he's hunting him down and and trying to effectively interrogate him to see whether this profile was right on, on Sherlock as well. It's never explicitly said, but when Sherlock gets him in that room and he says, hey, criminal, your profile says that you would go for the handcuffs and give up. Or you could go for this loaded gun that I've put on the table here and try and murder me. Which do you want to go for? <laughs> like, it's so clear um, without Sherlock having to explicitly say what he wants. And even afterwards, he doesn't tell anyone. They say, what were you doing in there? What did you need? And he says, I don't even know. I don't know if I'll know for another five years. I love the subtlety of this episode and the way that we turn this psychopathic, crazy, you know, serial killer into a tool for Sherlock to use. It's almost like in examining this prisoner's, like, 
own psychology. He's examining a a crime scene. He's examining a clue to see which way it'll go. The other thing that is really nice about this episode is I think that it much more adequately deals with the tone of the premise of the crime. Like it delivers things seriously. It delivers things intensely. Um, And particularly when we are talking about the family history, you know, the stonewalling that the criminal profiler is giving until she eventually admits her guilt really starts to build her up as a B villain to the story that pays off, you know, kind of nicely. And that when she basically gets attacked uh, and nearly killed as a result of her actions, you know, you're kind of left wondering, like, did she deserve it? Which is, you know, a, a dark thought to have, but I think that because the show sets that up so well, it means that the moral quandary of the episode is very elegantly fleshed out, despite how overall dark it is. It should be said that Sherlock Holmes is known for, in many ways, popularizing the detective uh, versus the police kind of dynamic. Um, But traditionally and historically, we see this dynamic through uh, a competition where the cops are bungling and inept. And uh, the detective is, you know, brash and bold and is able to, through their own personal connections and their own talents, come out ahead. And it's all very vindicating for the detective to beat the system in that way. We still get a little bit of that, especially through uh, uh, Bell, our, our um, sort of Lestrade stand-in. Anything he says you can in the first half of the episode, you just know is wrong. Um, but they play with this dynamic by still having this detective versus cop rivalry. Uh, but we we continuously have these, as you say, these B villains, uh, these policemen and women who have manipulated the system, have planted false evidence, have made false charges to you know wrap up a case that they, they just know is right, even though they don't have the right you know the right stance to put it to put everybody away. Um, and I kind of love that. I personally, because I love that sort of dynamic, I love, uh, and we'll, we'll jump into the our, our final episode, discuss M in a second. I love episodes where policemen and criminals team up, or stories, I should say, or where they need to have a tenuous alliance. Yeah, I think you said while we were watching the episode, and I really like the way that you phrased it, that it was a symbiotic rivalry. For sure, for sure. And it is, I, I think that that plays out really nicely, particularly when we get to, as you mentioned, M, where the man that uh, Sherlock suspects of killing his lover, Irene Adler, shows up mysteriously in New York City some weeks after Sherlock himself did. And Sherlock basically ends up going under the nose of the police, tracking the man down, chaining him up. One of the greatest assassins in known history, allegedly, who had never been seen before, uh, portrayed by the incredible Vinnie Jones, including several jokes about how he used to be a football player, much like Vinnie Jones himself. But Sebastian Moran, a famous, famous assassin from the Sherlock stories, uh, someone ironically, I might add. Basically, we have this brilliant scene where Sherlock has gone under the nose of the police and is about to kill this man to get personal justice uh, and ends up finding out, basically, that Sebastian Moran is not, in fact, the one that uh, killed Irene Adler. Well, it's not just finds out, it's that mm. it's the beauty of the scene is that he has this assassin chained up and he says, I know that you're M, I know that you killed Irene. And the assassin says, hey, 
I've got evidence. I've got an alibi. And Sherlock, like, you're not sure if he's going to believe him or not, right? <laughs> like, there's this tension up until the last moment as to whether he's going to just kill him out of rage, even though he's clearly not the right man. And there, there is this brilliant, brilliant execution of what was clearly a vaccine deal that was off camera by Sherlock and Sebastian Moran, where uh, Moran gets stabbed by Sherlock because, you know, he was still angry and wanted to get it out, but he gets stabbed in a completely non-vital place. And then clearly they make some agreement to try and get Moran off with the shortest sentence possible. Uh-huh. Yeah, Sebastian comes back on screen and he's like, oh, yeah, we got into a bit of a tussle. I, I came at him, though. You understand? It's so good. And and clearly they've both agreed to try and get revenge on this mutual enemy, Professor Moriarty. Oh, let me correct myself. Not Professor Moriarty, just Moriarty. Moriarty. Yeah, yeah. And oh my goodness, it is it is such a well well delivered sequence. It's so intense compared to the rest of the show, but it pays off beautifully. And I I really hope we see more of Vinnie Jones than we did in season one. His uh his two appearances in the first season were not enough for me. It's all right. We'll have to look forward to the future. I think herds that is plenty of elementary for this show. We still have one more Sherlock Holmes adaptation we want to cover before returning to the pages of our iconic mystery tomes. The only, the only adaptation that matters, the Robert allegedly, Downey Jr. Yeah, allegedly. The, allegedly. The Robert Downey Jr. movie adaptations, there were only two. Next week, we are going to, of course, be talking about Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows, <laughs> the 2009 and 2011 Guy Ritchie films starring Robert Downey Jr., as we will never forget. I'll let you know, Herds, I've been catching up on my Guy Ritchie film history. Oh, good. I yeah, caught Vinnie Jones in one of his films, of course, uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, but I'm very much looking forward to getting in to the excellent stylings of Guy Ritchie in these modern adaptations, and especially, Herds, after you touting the excellence of these films for so long, it is time to put them under the microscope and either prove you wrong or prove you right. Prove you right. I'm They're not fantastic sure which films. I prefer, honestly. Oh, they are. Look, they are fantastic films that I will never forget. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so Thank you very much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. We will see you back here next week with more of this Sherlock Holmes nonsense. It's been a pleasure having you with us tonight. Stick around for all the excellent programming we have going on to SER through the apocalypse, or maybe the apocalypse is over. We don't know. We're (laughs) pre-recording.